Well, good morning, everybody. God bless you. If you're new or visiting, welcome to Calvary Chapel. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Please open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 6. We've come as far as verse 60. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. Um, anyone in need of a Bible, please don't be shy. It's really wonderful to study the Word of God line by line and verse by verse as we look at it and go through it together. So John chapter 6. Again, we've come as far as verse 60, but to get a running start, if you'll allow me uh, this morning, um, we're going to go back to verse um, sort of 28, um, because it, it is thematic in what we're reading in context um, to what's going on um, and the question, because remember, up to this point, what had happened was, is there was a, a miracle, one of the few miracles like that, that's actually captured, captured in all four Gospels, and that was the feeding of the 5,000, which with, you know, women and children was really closer to 10 or 15,000 people. And um, the people in that time, uh, many of us have Thanksgiving every year, we kind of push back from the table because... Uh, we feel like we can't eat another morsel. We're full like that. Uh, the term for that actually in the Bible would be um, a term gluttoned. It doesn't mean gluttony. Like the, it's from the root etymology of that word, but it's an idea of like where you are just bursting at the seam and you couldn't have another morsel of food. You're like, I am just um, sono contento, right? As we'd say in Italian, like I'm full. I'm, I'm, I'm good. And so um, they had had this, I mean, back then to have that kind of filling uh, most people would live their whole lives, unless you were uh, a nobleman or somebody like that, never ever experienced anything like that. And so they had had this and they thought, well, this is wonderful. Yes, this is what we want. This is the Jesus we want. And certainly we know they were going to crown him king, uh, which was out of the will of God, even though he is the king of kings, because he had come to die. He was making his way towards Calvary. And then um, obviously uh, walking on the water, he puts them into a storm, right? And then went up to the mountain and was praying for them. And it was just a reminder to us that sometimes the trials or storms of our lives are actually the protection of God to keep us in his will and to protect us that way. And then from there, we went on to the teaching that kind of starts to surround the next chapter or two, which has to do with the bread of heaven. And the idea, because they had been so glutton, so full like that, they were like, yes, we want the manna that um, our fathers had had. We want you to feed us that same way. Give us that. And, and so Jesus is so faithful to meet us right where we are. Have you ever noticed that? He meets us right where we're at at that moment. And he uses the same imagery that they were sort of picking up on and that they wanted that temporal filling to feel like, oh man, my belly's full. I can't eat another morsel. But he gives them the idea of the bread from him. He says, you know what? I have come from heaven from my father. And the bread I'm going to give you, the bread from heaven, this is to sustain you, not just physically, but eternally. He's talking in the spiritual realm. And it's a reminder to us, well, going back again to John chapter 3, when he met with Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees, and he sat with him, and, you know, a teacher in all of Israel, right? So uh, wise, he says, you're a teacher in Israel. And again, that's, a, that's a, quite a thing to say to someone. But you don't understand these things that I'm speaking about. How can I speak to you the heavenly things, the spiritual things, if you can't even understand the temporal or, you know, these earthly things? And it's from that point that they then said, okay, um, well, 
how do we do this? What work do we need to do? And that's where we're going to pick up in our reading here um, this morning. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll begin. But they wanted to go back to a works-based mentality, kind of a religion, because after all, Judaism was founded in that, a works-based mentality. And so this idea of what can they do, denominations today, we even see it today, there are denominations that teach a works-based mentality and what they needed to do to truly be saved. And Jesus is going to explain it's the work of God, not a work of man. And that's simply all he's all called us to do is, is to receive of that free gift of grace. And it's so beautiful. So if you bow your head, we'll thank our Lord. We'll pray this morning. Father, we do thank you. Um, Lord, you are holy. Lord, we love you. And thank you that you have made it so clear that it is a gift of grace. And thank you that we are able to receive that gift right now, Lord. We thank you for that. And for those that have never even uh, been born again or saved, Lord, we pray today would be the day of salvation, Jesus. And Lord, for the rest, for the, the disciples, for the learners, Lord, for those that are, are here because they're in love with you, Jesus, your word. God, I just pray you would press into us as we press into you that your word, Lord, certainly alive. God, breathe. It's all from you, God. I pray that you would um, just speak to our hearts here, that there would be fertile ground for your word to take root in. And then, Lord, it would create fruit some 30, 60, and 100 fold, Lord. So, Jesus, we just want to ask you to have your way in us. We understand that, Lord, in these last days, Lord, we know there's compromise. Lord, we pray that we would not be a part of any of that, but there would be a full submission, a full surrender, Lord. Not, not one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, but, Lord, all our hearts would belong completely to you, poured out and fully surrendered. So, Jesus Christ, we just ask this in, in your mighty name. Do the work, God, that you do in all of us with truth and love. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people pray. Amen. 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 All right. Please, again, look back at uh, chapter 6, verse 28. I guess we'll get a sort of a running start, as I'd like to say. Then they said to him, what shall we do? Again, a work of man, that we may work the works of God. But Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, please, in context, remember that they've just been at the feeding of the 5,000. They know what the work he is able to do. And what are they really saying? More. That, that's what they're saying here. We want more of that work. And oh, by the way, uh, food, manna from heaven. And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, Jesus, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Again, still thinking carnally. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He makes it very clear. He's the sustenance. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you did not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will know by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all of all he has given me, I should lose nothing 
but should raise it up on the last day. He says this twice. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Then the Jews complained uh, about him because they said, I am the, because he said, I am the bread who came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the, at the last day. It is written in all the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone sees the Father except he who is from God. Jesus is saying, I'm the eyewitness. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. He's spiritually speaking here, of course. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, we talked about this last idea, last week, excuse me, it's that being a partaker, being born again, eat. There's something in the Jewish mind that when you would sit down for a meal, if I was going to eat with you and we would dip the sop together, I dip, you're dipping, we're doing that communally. Uh, I'm partaking, um, we would think maybe today I would, people would say germs, but it's not germs. We would say it that way. And I'm dipping, you're dipping, or, and what we are actually doing is partaking taking of each other. We're becoming one intimately by the fellowshipping that we're doing. Clearly understood in the Jewish mind um, when Jesus Christ is talking about this illustration. However, they're still thinking he's still talking more about physical food and carnality. What he's really saying spiritually is to partake of Jesus, one who's born again. What did he say? He says, I come and knock. And those who open, where? On the heart. He doesn't mean he physically like knocks on your heart. You don't get the, you know, But the idea that he's coming and he's supping with you, he says. Isn't that interesting, the term he used there? I want to sup with you. I want a fellowship. I want to eat with you. Because they all understood. It was the Jewish mind. I want that intimacy with you. This is what he's talking about. This is why Christianity is all based on the foundation of relationship. Could never be about works. It's an intimacy, a beautiful intimacy. Far more than anything we can even understand in in a human uh, familiar type of way. It is the most intimacy that you could have as a human being is with your creator, your God, Jesus. And that's what he's describing here to them. But, but look at how they're going to respond and how they're going to take this. He, again, I just go back to 51 with that same mindset. He says, I am the living God, which came down from him. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. We talked about this. How many religions have read this? And, you know, I know I I came when I was, you know, born. I was born, you know, my family was raised in Roman Catholicism. And again, I'm not trying to knock anyone here that way. But um, we were taught that the Eucharist, through a transubstantiation, became the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ at that time. And that when you partook of it, you were actually partaking of Jesus. And they use this passage to sort of defend that or explain that teaching. But what has been the context as we've been going through it? What has been the imagery? What did they ask for again? Show us what the works are. What can we do? What were they asking for? Give us a sign. What was the sign they wanted again? Full bellies. What is Jesus doing? 
meeting them right where they're at, giving them imagery of what they're asking for and drawing them from the temporal to the eternal and the spiritual. Moving them away from the physical, which only, as he said already, your fathers that ate the manna in the wilderness, they're dead. But you who eat of the bread of life, God, partake, will live forever. Spiritually speaking, eternally. That's what he's, that's what he's explaining here. He says, I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among them, saying, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Not, and if this was to be taken literal, then Jesus Christ would have effectively uh, broken the law. One, it would have been a temporal thing because uh, last I checked, the tomb was empty. There's no way to find Jesus's flesh again that way. That means that only these people at that particular time that were eyewitnesses to this or to the crucifixion would have been the only ones that would have ever been able to as gross as that sounds, physically partake of the eating of the flesh of a human being. Because when he rose from the dead, his body is not there. There is no. So we, we know that's clearly not what it says. And also we understand because of Leviticus and because of the Old Testament scriptures that teach us that cannibalism is a sin. And to drink blood is a sin, right, that way. So that would be scripture contradicting scripture, and we know Christ perfectly kept the law. That can't be what he's saying here. No, what he's talking about is the spiritual. Then Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of this flesh of the Son, unless you're a partaker of me, Jesus, of the man, and drink his blood, you have full partaking, because life is in the blood, you have no life in me. What was the blood in the communion? Every month, when on the first of the month, we partake of communion together. And we read, and we remember, and we declare Right? And taking and understanding the, the, the symbolism um, of that, the memorial of that, that his body was broken. His blood was shed on the cross. And it was through the cross, through the blood that was being shed, that ushered in what? The new covenant. The new covenant is in his blood because even in the Old Testament, as a sacrificial system, life was in the blood. It cost Jesus everything. It cost God everything that way so that you and I, because Jesus was a propitiation, that means a substitute for our, our death, our need because of our sin account. And that's what he's talking about here. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds becoming one on me will live because of me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna, not as the physical food and are dead. Saying it one more time. He who eats this bread will live forever. What is he declaring to them? Jesus Christ, Messiah, is the source of all life. He is the source of all life. There's a greater miracle that has happening here than even the eating of the 5,000. And that is God the Father sending his only begotten son. That whoever should believe, right, can receive eternal life. That is the greatest miracle of all. And that's what he's describing here. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, we're picking up with our passage of where we've, we've got to and where we'll be here this morning. Verse 60. And this is uh, very important, and this is where this transition comes in. Again, keeping the context of what we just read, we're going to be reading about disciples. And remember, we talked a couple weeks back. The Bible uses this term in three significant ways. 
One um, is, uh, I think the easiest way to help understand is a teacher to a student kind of experience. You might be a disciple, especially in those days when you had the Greeks and you had philosophy and philosophical ideas and there was this teaching of philosophical narratives from the Greeks that would have come in. And uh, you as a student can participate in a class. Some of you are in college. Some of you have been through college or high school. You can go and you can listen as a student, can't you? You can hear what the teacher's saying, but that doesn't mean you entirely agree all that the teacher is saying, does it? It just means that you're listening, you're hearing what the teacher is saying, and you're able to, well, at least if you want to pass the test, you're able to regurgitate what the teacher is looking for on the test so that you give them exactly what they understand. You heard them, you listened, and you were able to explain that you have an understanding of that. But in no way does that mean you are in complete agreement with them in any capacity, as a matter of fact. It simply means that you can repeat back or somehow uh, demonstrate your level of understanding of what they were communicating to you. You with me on that? That's one way that you see in Scripture um, and even in the Greeks in the study uh, of, of teaching, of discipleship. It's a learner. The exact definition and trans, uh, translation from the Greek is a learner. That's what it means in a Greek lexicon if you looked it up. The other idea is one who is a disciple who is a born-again believer and truly following Jesus Christ. You are one with God. You, you cannot be separated. Even if you are standing alone in the middle of the, the desert, you and Jesus are a multitude. And that's, that's another kind of, of the disciple, right? And then certainly there's one that would follow, we might say, um, much like what we see today with fads. Or when I was growing up, there would be a fad and, you know, uh, maybe um, I remember when I was growing up, there was Michael Jackson and he had the glove, right? And he had the coat and some of you remember the leather or pleather. Uh, most of us had the pleather version uh, of the coat that you would wear with the whole thing. And, and how many of you can remember, you know, I won't moonwalk right now, but how many of you, I can't, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, like, come on, give us the moonwalk. If I could, I would. But how many of you remember the moonwalk where, and then you would do the whole thing and I'm tempted, right? The whole thing and spin around, right? I'm embarrassed. So anyway, he would, so he, he would, you know, you knew that and you're like, oh, that's what I want to do and you're following. And then something else comes up, right? Or, or you know, Billy Joel or, or, you know, the piano man. And then you're, you know, those are like fads. Those are, you know, we follow those things until it no longer has any interest to us. And then we're on to something else. You, you follow. So those are really the three things we, that we see in Scripture. What we're going to see here is Jesus Christ is going to talk about uh, the two of them. Uh, not the one that's a true born-again believer of Jesus. One that is one with Christ. Uh, many of you, friends, that's not who he's talking about that's leaving him. He's talking about those that have sought Jesus. Again, the motive, right, was a full belly or what God could do for them or a miracle or sign, whether that's healing, or fill in the blank. Why do you come to the Lord? Why are you coming to Jesus? It's an examination of motive. And apparently there's several people that had been following by them this time, but their motives weren't pure whether they were coming to them. And we couldn't fault somebody for this necessarily because they needed a miracle. Maybe they were blind. Maybe they were lame and couldn't walk. We shouldn't fault somebody for wanting. But what's the real intention of their heart? Are they in love with Jesus or is it what I can get from Jesus? Some people, materialism. Some people, you, you understand. Relationships, whatever, you know. Not the relationship, but a, a spouse or this or that, right? And what this is going to examine and show us, and these are very um, heavy words, is, 
it's going to call us to come to that place is, why do we follow Jesus? And who is Jesus Christ to us? And that examination of motive in our hearts. So look at verse 60 with me as we go. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Circle we, by the way, plural. You have the words of eternal life. Also, we, plural again, have come to believe and know, we'll talk about that word kenosko in the Greek in a minute, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Pretty heavy passage this morning, isn't it? There's a whole lot that's going on. I mean, this is at the culmination. Please remember, chapter 6 began, and even as we lead into chapter 7, this will be the last six months of Jesus Christ's three to three and a half year ministry. Okay, so just in a few short months, right, they're in the fall, right, because we're going to read about in chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles. That always would happen in in our calendar in the September, um, October time frame. So that sort of grounds us in the dating. And it won't, again, six months or less, you know, it'll be the spring, April. And what comes in April, again, in our calendar, March, April time frame, when Jesus Christ in the triumphal entry, he goes in and that was the Feast of Passover, Right. So we, we know this was in six months. I mean, this is a very short time period before everything's about to unfold. And for two to two and a half years, he's had a multitude of disciples following them. And, and, and he's seen up to this point five, you know, six miracles, five, six signs that way of the Lord. And, and that was what was drawing the multitudes and they were coming out. Um, but many of them with an inaccurate and proper motive. In verse 60, it says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, it's hard saying. Who can understand it? This isn't like um, you speak too quick. I, I, I can't keep up with you. I don't understand you. No, what this word hard here means is it's difficult to accept. Um, I don't think any of us really struggle with this uh, portion of scripture here right now, because what I mean by that is, are there things that you read in the word of God that challenge you in your heart? Of course, we call that what? Conviction. That's not condemnation. Guilt and condemnation, that's from the devil, the enemy. That's not of the Lord. But there are times that we in our minds or our hearts want to do one thing, and yet that thing we want to do is contrary to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. And we're challenged with a choice at that moment. We, we all have a choice, don't we? We can do the will of God, I mean, isn't that even how he told us to pray? 
Lord, thy will be done, not my will, your will. He, he taught us to pray that way. But there is a choice there, certainly. He's a righteous judge. There has to be a choice. Sovereign God gives free will. It's part of the equation. But we have a choice of whether we want or we enable that sin or we do that. What he's saying here, or what the, the Jews or the multitude, the disciples, the people that are all hearing this, some 10, 15,000 people as they're gathered, because they're all following and looking for him, wanting this miracle and wanting their bellies gluttoned again, saying, this is, this is really too hard to accept. I, I cannot hear this with acceptance. Some of that certainly is intellectualism. Okay, that idea, again, going back up to verse, verse 42, when he said, we know who you are. You're Jesus. You're, you're the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Well, actually, are you? You're not the son of Joseph biologically. You're the son of the Holy Spirit that way, if you want to put it that way, because it was a miracle. You're the son of Mary. You were born and it needed to be done that way. It's amazing how many people think they know Jesus through familiarity, um, but they don't know Jesus. You know, I, I hear things like that all the time. Well, you know, well, Jesus, but are we talking about the same Jesus? I mean, even the Mormons in, in a Mormon cult, they, they will talk about Jesus. It's not the Jesus we believe in scripture. Um, those who practice Islam, um, again, they talk about a Jesus as a prophet, but that's not the same Jesus in scripture. And so there's a familiarity, but they don't know the intimacy and they don't know the character of God. So sometimes familiarity, you know, I don't know my life. I, I find it, maybe you find it too. Sometimes it breeds assumptions or presumptions of familiarity. It can cause us to come to, if we're not careful, a false narrative. And that's exactly what they've done. Well, I know who you are. You couldn't have come from God in heaven. I mean, we're going to read in chapter 7. They, they think he was even born in Galilee, not realizing he was born in Bethlehem. All of these presumptions and assumptions are going to lead to a misinterpretation and a false narrative. And I just think about how many people in the world say, oh, I grew up hearing about Jesus. I know the tugboat and the giraffes and the little baby thing, you know, uh, Noah. No, you know, I know of those things. I've heard of those things. And, and then you go to the Creation Museum and you see the intricacy of how big the ark is and how amazing, miraculous what God has done. And you start, and it takes life and you, oh my and it changes your perspective. It changes your assumptions and presumptions. Well, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening because of their intellect and their idea of they're trying to take their logic and their pragmatism, and they're trying to wrestle with that, with what they understand. Go, but I know his family. I know where he lived. Uh, this can't be what you're saying. And they're not willing to lay, and they're also based on errors. And they're not willing to lay those things out. It's hard. It's difficult. Who can understand it? It's difficult to accept. You know what else I think was going on at this time? And I think it's still going on today. We want a Messiah. Every one of us would say in some capacity, uh, and the Jewish people at that time as well, and I would say today, they would argue and uh, probably say the same thing. We want a Messiah that's going to give us what we want. We want a Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome. This is what the Jewish people at that time would have said even though they'll argue um, uh, 
the high priest and um, will argue with Jesus or even Pontius Pilate, where they'll say, well, you know, we're, we're, he's not our king. We have, you know, our king is, see, you know, and they'll go through that whole thing, not recognizing that they're under the oppression of Rome. And they know that they don't want to be in the, under the oppression, which is why there was a whole group of zealots that were raised up to try to overthrow at the right time, the Roman government and what was going on there. No, people want a Messiah that will give them what they want. They want a Messiah that's going to give them a full belly. They don't want a Messiah that's going to bring scriptural um, demands or commands. And if we're really being honest with each other, that's the rub. There's not a single human being alive that doesn't know that Jesus is Lord. I'm fundamentally, I believe that. I know there's somebody, I know somebody's going to there's somebody on an island somewhere. There's a tribe somewhere that has not been reached. I, I get that, the last Gentile. Otherwise, we'd be out of here, right? But when presented with Jesus, are they going to reject him because they don't understand? Or is it going to come down again? Whose will be done? I've learned that a long time ago. My my son, when he was little, I shared. He went. We went to the Jubilee Fest in Mechanicsburg, and every stood out there. You know, at that time, I don't know if he was six, seven, eight, whatever he was, and handing out stickers and you know things like that, loving on people, handing out water. You know, Jesus, and oh yeah, we know who you know, and they you know just dismissive. And he says, "But Dad, if they really knew Jesus, why would they be okay with eternal separation from Him? He's love." He's truth. He's God. I mean, this is from a seven-year-old, you know, that understands mommy and daddy love them. And that's a fraction of the truth of the heavenly father. And they, they comprehend that. It's a matter of wills. It's been so clear to me it's a matter of wills. So we go on, and when Jesus knew him in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, again, that word disciples, we talked about it. This is the definition of the two, not the one that's a born-again true believer that's going to follow him wherever he goes. Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Isn't that interesting that he said that? Because it'll be 40 days, well, six months and 40 days, if you want to be specific. That he'll, be, he'll do what? He'll ascend into heaven after resurrection. He says, will that offend you? It is the spirit who gives life. The idea here is there's no offense in heaven from what Jesus Christ is saying because it's truth. He says, friends, the flesh and these things you're asking for, these temporal things, these fleshly things, it profits nothing. Comfort profits Nothing right? It's a mirage. I've never met a single human being that said, you know what? That's enough. I don't want another dollar or a penny in my account. I, I, I don't want another, other than maybe at Thanksgiving, we push away for that moment. But the next day, we'd run back to the left. Okay, I run back to the leftovers, all right? Maybe it's self, you know, confession. I don't know. <laughs> right? We do that, right? Turkey a la king, turkey this way, turkey that way, ham this way. More, more, more. We don't turn around and go, you know what? That whole feast thing, you know, I'm done with that. I'm not eating for like a week now. Meanwhile, we had enough sustenance to maintain us for a week, hadn't we? We just came off a week-long fast here. I know I certainly, you know, didn't melt away. 
you didn't have to agree with me. The words that I speak to you, he says, are spirit, right? And they are life. You guys are tough. But there are some of you who do not believe. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, I will not and cannot change the message. I'm not going to change the word of God to meet the culture. I'm not going to change the word of God to entice a younger generation or a different group of people with a bait and switch so they come into the church and they come in under the guise of X, Y, and Z, and then I bait and switch them and say, oh, no, no, God doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to live this way. Now you got to do this. And it's like, what? That's not how God works. No, no, no. The culture changes. People change. The word of God changes people. It's not people that change the word of God. That's not biblical. We don't find that in churches. Is that, now, now we start to understand why there are so many churches that no longer teach the word of God. Or, or sorry, I'll say it in a different way. They teach two scriptures or three scriptures, and then they opine for 40 minutes on three scriptures, man's wisdom, and they, and they wonder why the body of Christ is famished. Because the meat of the word of God is essential. It's sustenance. It's life. It's, it's to be honest, it's to sit in a church where the, the, and I'm not saying this because I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. I mean, just um, let me relate it this way. If you went to a buffet and you have all of the nice delicacies and foods and different things, some of you are vegetarian in here and you will go straight to the good, healthy vegetable things, Right? But many of you are going to the prime rib or like the ham or like the potatoes or like the desserts, right? And you, come on, don't, you're like, I don't know, pastor, you seem really sinful right now. Are you sure you're not gluttoned? No, no, no. No, I mean, I mean, really be honest. Like you go to the buffet. Come on. A lot of you've been to buffets. Like, where are you frequenting? Are you like, you know what? I'm not going to touch that warm, delicious apple pie with uh, a la mode. I'm not going to do it. No, you might do it at the end and be like, oh, just a little. Right? But isn't that what we do when we go to the word of God and we sort of dance around it? Because it becomes very easy not to get a full meal of the meat of God when I'm only talking about the things that make people's ears itch or drip. That's exactly what's happening. And don't you think for one second, please, beloved, that that's not intentional. Maybe the guy standing up here may not be aware of what's really happening. But don't think for one moment that that's not intentional by the enemy. And he's very happy to convince you don't need the word of God. You don't need the Old Testament. Even though 1 Corinthians 10 testifies that we all do because it's an example for us. uh, So that we don't repeat the same lusts as those had gone before us as times of old in Israel. And that's why we are not, not here, praise God, you, you all, and I'm pre- preaching to the choir here, but that's why the body of Christ as a whole is spiritually famished. That's why people are walking away, running away from God because they're bankrupt. They, it'd be like you living on you know, a poor diet, eventually it will catch up with you. You will become diseased, disease. That's what that word means, dis-ease. One that's not at ease, not content, not 
whole that way. You become diseased. And that's exactly what happens when you don't have a solid, uh, proper diet. It's the same thing spiritually speaking. And, and what he's saying here is that I speak to you. The words I speak to you are spirit, they're life. I can't change these things. I don't want to change these things. You don't want me to change these things. You don't want me to cover one passage of, of one area of scripture and then skip a book over and, and, and do that because, oh boy, the, the church is going to give then. Oh boy, the numbers are going to increase then. Oh boy, we can fill all the seats. Who cares about any of that if the word of God isn't being taught? We're not creating disciples then. The Lord's not creating disciples. He adds unto the church. We're creating a spiritually literate generation. And that should grieve every one of your hearts. Because you're the body of Christ. And you're a royal priesthood, Peter tells you. Holy, a precious people. You're redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And there's nothing cheap about that. He wants so much more for you. He wants you to know his character, his identity, his love, his mercy, his truth. And that comes predominantly through the reading of the word of God and prayer and selah, as the word says in Hebrew, resting in it. Pause. Think about it. He says, I can't change that. But, but there are some of you who, who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that there was who not believe who would betray him. What, what is he talking about here? There were those that were with him that they didn't have a commitment. There was no commitment there to Jesus. No commitment to his truth. Again, it's revealing the motive, isn't it? Because why are they there? Why are they following him? Is it because they want a spiritual, you know, they want healing? And again, we don't fault people, right? Like if, if you, like that man that was at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, he was afflicted, right? Can't walk, wants to make his way into the pool, you know, with the idea, philosophy of that day that the angels stirred it up in water. His whole life he waited there to try to get into that water, desiring for something like that. We wouldn't fault anybody like that because anybody that's been suffering more than a day, you know what that's like. You, you want that person healed. You want to see that. So we don't fault them. But that can't be the motive. That can't be the reason that we come to God. Might be a, you know, a benefit of his spirit, but that's not the motive. It can't be because we want full bellies or materialism or comfort or any of the other things that you would put into that bucket. Because what happens is when you don't, get what you think you deserve entitled to or want. You have nothing vested. And so you walk away. You know, I think of how many people over the years, I don't like the color of the carpet. I don't like the color of the seats in the church. I don't like the color of your socks. So you laugh. Many of you have and I praise God for this, have no idea the things that people can become critical about that have nothing to do with the word of God. You know, it's like I always tell my family, just get prepared to live in the fishbowl. And, and, and I don't just have to say that to you. I'm preaching to the choir. You all know that because you in your life as Christians, whether you go into your employment, your work, your school, wherever you are, unless you're surrounded completely by like-minded believers, you know they're watching you too, and they're looking for the first chance, first opportunity. You say something or do something different that doesn't line up, and they're more than happy to throw and cast that first stone. 
or because you, you know, you go out and buy a TV. You heathen. How dare you? What? Since when did that become legalism? I didn't know. We, I thought that was weaved out by Christ. And there was grace for those kind of things. Now, granted, if you, it's all you do, we got a problem, right? But that's between you and Jesus. Don't be somebody else. I don't want to be somebody else's Holy Spirit. I don't want somebody else to be in my Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit. He does that work perfectly. But there was no commitment here. And you see, and, and you know, I, w- I was telling first service, this is very interesting. I love how the, bo- the Lord knits the body in unity. He knits the heart to the pastor and pastor to the heart, to the word of God, to the, it's, it's so supernatural how the Lord does this. Every, you know, we're, we're, as you guys know, we're all building a new, you know, the Lord's building a new building. We're getting ready to move there to work. I don't know if you've driven by there. I hope if you do, you pray, you still pull over, you pray and look at, pray for the people, you know, the dirt and the mounds are starting to get made, the driveway, all the stuff's going on over there. And, um, I watch as the Lord does that. He, uh, as he does that, it's like when we went from Railroad Avenue to here, he starts to unify the body. There are some that are not going to be a part of that. And we recognize that. And, you know, there's a season to it. And certainly it breaks my heart and breaks those that are. But those things needs be. Because we pray for a unity and a refining. And sometimes there are times where there are blessed subtractions. And I know that's hard to hear. But we don't want anybody not to be in the perfect will of God. Amen? We want the perfect will of God. We want them to be where God wants them to be. That's the most important thing. Even though we love, we love you, you love each other. But you have to be where God is calling you. You want to be faithful to that. And so I watch as God does this. He's, he's adding. He's creating unity. He's, he's beautiful. And there should be commitment. There should be something like that that God does um, and, and there should be that for all of us to Jesus Christ, most importantly. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Again, the, the motive must be about the father. It must be spiritual. Um, this is important as well. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Just Just don't read that like we just read it off the page, but live that for a minute. Let the video run in your mind. Think about the friends and family you have around you and the prodigals in your life. And think about those people that you love over the years. Some of you are 15, 20. Some of you are 50, 60, 90. And you think about the people that have come and gone in your life, Christians, or as we would call them by name, Christian, if if that's truly what they were who've walked away from God for, for a myriad of different reasons, none of them good. And you begin to think about that and how heartbreaking is that for you? You have a son walk away from God. You have a daughter walk away from God. You, you, you don't, you're not okay with it, right? You don't, you don't just, well, let's go get lunch, you know? No, you're, most of us are broken. We're brought to the point of sobbing on our knees, crying out, asking God for help. And do we have that same heart the way Jesus Christ has that heart for every single person that we're talking about right here, even those that came with the wrong motive? You don't think this broke his heart? You don't think today that it breaks his heart when people reject him? 
It's overwhelming, isn't it? And, I, and, I, and forgive me this morning. I didn't, I know you just let the video run for a moment, didn't you? Be, it's kind of like um, if I ask a particular flavor or a smell, all of a sudden you can smell it, right? Or you can remember the taste if you've had it. We go into the imagery of that, and you, what you just did is you let that word sink in, and it moved from the mind to the heart, and you began to feel it and experience it. It's beautiful. How many times do you open your Bible in the morning or night or whenever you're doing your devotion and you just begin to weep and you break because you are knit to Christ and for a moment he allows you to see the joy, sometimes the pain, directly from his perspective. And it overwhelms. It's like overstimulation. You leak. You can't contain it all. You know that sobbing? You know what I'm talking about if you've had that. You, you can't control it. That's what we're talking about here. That's what he, we read it. So he's, oh, and they just, they walked and followed him no more. Heartbreaking. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? He looks to the apostles now. How do you think he said that? You think he was laughing? Like, hey, they weren't really into it. You want to go away too? Or do you think he said it broken? Devastated. Because all he wanted was Israel. The Jews just to come in to be part of the fold, which he desired, which was written in scripture 483 years prior, prophesied by Daniel. Promised is the decree of Nehemiah chapter 2. The time clock started. This was the day of visitation to the Jewish people. Their long-awaited Messiah was here. Would God moved heaven and earth to make that miracle of the immaculate conception, right? We say that, right? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Circle that we, plural. All the apostles are saying that. Friends, I know that's how you feel. The word of God being taught. Where do you go? Once you've had the word of God, line by, where, where, once you've had Jesus, where can you go? There, you can't. I mean, if, if you're a true believer, if you're, if you're truly a disciple of Christ, where can you go? You can't settle for anything less. Nothing. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go back to the milk. What? You started tasting meat. You had a solid diet. How can you go back to the milk? You're going to constantly get those pains in your stomach because you were nourished. How can you go back to an idol or some other materialism or some other object of worship or distraction when you've met and supped with the one true God in relationship and intimacy? I understand exactly what they're talking about. I bet almost all of you here do too if you're born again. You have the words of eternal life. Your doctrine's true. Also, we, circle again, have come to believe and know. That word know is kenosko. Two different words we predominantly see in the Greek for understanding. One is, or to know, I should say. One is kenosko, which is by, um, 
experience. So um, you, you go to your job, maybe somebody teaches you how to do something, you experience it, and then you now know how to do it, or you begin to understand it and know. The other one is Ido in the Greek, which is more innate. Like um, I, I was trying to think of examples to make this simple, but um, some of you in here are mathematical. <laughs> uh, you can look at numbers. You can find patterns. You immediately start solving formulas. You don't know how, like if I asked you, how do you do that? You're like, I, it's, this isn't like a Holy Spirit gift of discernment. There's a clear difference. You know the difference of that when the Holy Spirit's moving and you, and you discern something and you're like, okay, that's of the Spirit of God and he's given me that. But this is just simply innate. You just, um, before you even understood, before you were even born again, you just, you could handle numbers. You could, oh, and you just, you knew the answer. You knew how to do it. You solved it. And it was just innate to you. And some people are like that with grammar, right? God bless you. Um, you know, I didn't get into grammar until I, the Greek and the Hebrew. And then I started having to learn grammar or Italian construction, right? You start learning these things, but that's not what this is. This is not innate. This is, what this is saying is they were eyewitnesses to the miracles of God. They were eyewitnesses to God living out Jesus, living out the Bible, living out his, the truth that he authored, right? It's, Timothy teaches us that, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, God wrote the Bible. It's God breathed. It's inspired by God, certainly, the Holy Spirit. He's, they're saying, we have witnessed you, Jesus. We know you, your fingerprints. Your you are God. It's, it's beyond contestation. We conosco it. It's not like we idled it and said, oh, innately, I just, no, they've witnessed God. They've witnessed the scriptures coming to life in the manifestation of Messiah standing right before them. That's all in this word kenosko here. I mean, that's, that's, what he's, that's what Peter and the apostles are declaring right now, that you are the Christ, again, the Greek Savior, uh, Hebrew Messiah, right? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? I, I find this very interesting here. It's, it's going to build on the rest of chapter 7 and 8. Uh, and even later on, um, uh, at the, after the triumphal entry and then the, at the Passover supper, it's, it, it's going to build on. This is very important. I want you to think about this. Jesus answered and said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? Now, we know at this point, we'll read in the next few chapters here, that he has not been demon-possessed yet. So he's referring to him as a devil. He, he's, you're an evil doer, is what he's he's declaring. You're a devil. You're an evil doer at this point. Jesus always knows who's his. We we may be able to fool, you know, we may be able to fool a lot of people, but you cannot fool God. We cannot fool Jesus. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Now, I just want you to think about that for a minute. Who, who is Judas Iscariot? He's one of the 12. We read that. Uh, this is also the man that will hold the purse or be effectively the treasure for the ministry. What Jesus Christ is declaring right now is, I know who this man is. I know what he's going to do. And yet I'm going to give him every choice not to do that. Every opportunity not to do that. I just want you to think about that. You know, um, we have a treasurer at the church. We have a board. We have a bookkeeper. We have all those people that do uh, really important things. And we certainly trust them. We certainly pray over that. But we, we have, you know, things put in place to make sure that it's, it's not a, uh, a blind trust that way. Uh, that even with temptation, there couldn't, because it's the Lord's money, right? We don't, we don't have the ability to do anything less than that. And here's Jesus. And I just, 
I was letting the video play and I'm like, okay, so in ministry, if I knew I had a group of 12 guys and I knew one of them was going to be the one that was going to betray me, the, the, the devil, the one, that's the one I'm going to give the purse strings to? That's the one I'm going to have be the treasure? Would any of you do that? No. This is also important because this introduces this concept. I mean, there's a philosophy of man around it. And I'll take a moment to speak about that. But this introduces a concept here. And we learn a little bit of how Jesus, well, God works. What he is saying is he already knows that Judas is going to betray him. Up to this point, Judas maybe hadn't. Well, we're about two and a half years, so probably he's gone in and stole from the treasury a couple times by now. We know that in scripture. He says he's done that. He's taken from, from the money bag. But to actually be, say that he would be the one that was going to go to the high priest and then, you know, a slave's wage to betray him, um, to be used to bring false accusation and bring him to a false trial, I don't know that any human being at that time would have been able to even prophesy and see something like that had he not been God, right? That's pretty in-depth and pretty specific. And what, he, what it's telling us right here, and, and how many of you have heard of the term Arminianism and, and, and you know, Calvinism and some of you? And, and again, I want to be very clear. Those are philosophies of men. My Bible doesn't say Calvin, nor does it say Arminian, Arminianism. It, it doesn't say anything like that. But it's a human term that we use much like if I came to you and said, I want you to explain to me the triune God, the Trinity, you would say, oh, I can help you with that, Pastor. He's, uh, he's one God in three persons. Okay, how's that work? That's all I got. Right? And I would be like, amen. That's all I got. You know, I hope nobody gives me an egg and goes, let me show you the egg. And starts, don't do that, right? We, we, there's some things we just, in our human ability, in our minds, conceptually, we can't process this miraculous thing of the Trinity or the triune God. This is the same thing for me. When I come to passages like this that tell me that God is able to see the beginning, he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning from the end, and yet he also, because that would, that's meant why he's sovereign, but yet at the same time, he also gives free will. <laughs> it makes my head hurt. But it's a required equation because think about this. If God is sovereign... And he doesn't give you the opportunity to choose free will. And you stand before him as a judge, because this is also in scripture, all will. Every believer will be resurrected, or excuse me, every human will be resurrected. Some to, you know, eternity of life with God, some to eternal punishment and separation in hell, right? We understand that. But everybody's going to appear before God, and they're going to give an account or an answer, right? We are going to say, Jesus, or Jesus is going to say, he's mine. My blood has washed him. He's mine. He's paid in full by the blood of the lamb. For the believers in Christ, born again. But for, not, for those who've rejected Jesus Christ, they can't, they, don't, they can't say that. And so they're going to stand before God. And I just want you to think about this. If they stood before God, and I'm going to use a term, it's maybe not the right term, forgive me, cooking the books. Probably not the best term to use here, but uh, it's the one I have handy. If, if somebody told you that God was cooking the books, is that a righteous judge? I want you to think about that for a minute. And maybe I'll put it in a different way. If somebody was saying to you that God had already predetermined without any opportunity that he was going to send certain people to hell and certain people to heaven and you lived a life and you stood and you were going to stand before the judge and the judge then says, or, or I'll even use a simpler example, you're driving in a car. You're 
operating your vehicle. You see a speed, a speed sign that says only go 55 miles an hour. And the minute you cross that line, all of a sudden your foot went boom, and you start driving 90. And you appear before the judge, and the judge says, well, can you tell me why you were speeding 90 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone? Well, judge, I had no choice. What do you mean? Well, the minute I crossed that line, my foot went straight down, and I started doing 90 miles an hour, and I never had a choice. So while the sign limit might have been posted at 55, none of us that cross over that can ever really go 55. We can only go 90. Now, would that be a righteous judge that says, I find you guilty as charged? You are guilty. Guilty of what? Driving 90 miles an hour. But I didn't have a choice to drive 90. I, I wanted to drive 55, but I didn't have a choice. Would that really be a righteous judge? No, because what? He pre-set that whole thing up so he wouldn't be righteous. That's the argument there. The counter to that is, if we went and stood before a God that said, hey, you can do whatever you want, and you can just drive 100 miles an hour and... You know, we don't really care. We're going we're to be a respecter of persons. It's you, Matt. We know you have a lead foot. It's okay. That wouldn't be a righteous judge either, right? Because then he's applying certain laws to me or certain rules to me, but not certain laws or rules to you. Again, wouldn't be a righteous judge. There has to be consistency. There has to be sovereignty. And there has to be righteousness, right living. But at the same time, God must give us free will. It's part of that equation. It must be part of it. Because without free will, we can't, of our own doing or choice, make a choice that as we see that sign that says 50 mile, and we start going 60 to go, no, no, no. Let me back off. Let me go 55. Because that's what the commanded or stated speed limit is. We, all, we don't have a problem with that in our vehicles. There's none of us that are challenged driving that way. There's nobody here that's going to walk out of here and go, the devil made me do 90. Right? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe there's someone out there. But most people in their right mind are not going to walk out of here and go, the devil made me drive 90. You're going to simply say, no, I, I made a choice. I willingly was late for an appointment, and I, I hit the gas, and I wanted to get there. And therefore, the verdict would be Right. Do you realize that the term justification is a legal term? And that's what God used to, to communicate to us what he has done for us. He has justified us. He has paid the account in full. He's using legal terms to teach us that he is a righteous judge. He even used the example in Scripture in the Old Testament to show us these things. So Arminianism would teach the idea that you know, we have free will. Calvinism would say you don't have free will. These things are all predetermined. There's a lot of nuances that I'm, I'm making that real simple just for our time. But really, sometimes the answer is both, depending on the situation. Because there are some passages that seem to lean more towards that way. But it has everything to do with the context. And that's really important. We need to be Bereans. And so I believe that Jesus has the ability to see the beginning and end. And yet, at the same time, you and I have the ability, through free will, to make those choices. Ask me how that works. I'm sorry, I'm limited. I can't do that. But that's what we read in Scripture. And if somebody asks you, you can bring them to this passage and say, please explain that to me. And they'll come to the same conclusion, no matter how much intellect they have, right? And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who betrayed him being one of the 12. The musicians can come forward. Again, Jesus is never fooled. We can fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. 
if we're walking out of here today, I think the, you know, these are heavy passages, but I think the Lord wants us to, I think he wants us to answer this question in the deepest points of our hearts and examine our hearts. Do we want the Jesus of scripture? I mean, really at the end of the day, because if you don't, you will walk away. As we're living in the last days, what happens when they say you can't have the Bible anymore? If you do, you're going to go to prison. Oh, by the way, that, that exists in other countries today, doesn't it? It does. And people willingly make a choice to still have the Bible and many times are imprisoned and or murdered. Unless you have a state or country-owned Bible that they've changed and manipulated to work with the government agenda. How do you think the remnant and the believers in these last days are going to exist when the fickleness, and oh, by the way, that's not my term. If you talk to people that live in Iran, Christians, you talk to people who live in Iraq, we get pastors' conferences, we get together, we pray, we talk with our international brothers and sisters. Do you know they pray for us? We're praying for them for martyrdom. They're praying for us for steadfastness. They're more worried about us than we, <laughs> they're like, we're good. We know where we're going. And I'm, I'm saying, are you talking about the Christian church? Oh, absolutely, as you would define it. They even got the term American Christianity, the American gospel. Oh, it's well known worldwide, internationally. That's what they call it. And it revolves around a fickleness, as they would describe it. And they pray for our souls. They pray for us. So do we want to know the Jesus of the scripture, or an American Christianity which revolves around self and ideals? Do we want to test the truth of the word of God? Again, it all comes back to verse 68, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Can everyone say that this morning? Where are we going to go, Lord? Are there people here that have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, and they're still wrestling with that? It's time to let that go. It's, stop, it's time to stop the balancing act. You know? And I want to I encourage you, if, the, if that's you, don't walk away from God. I, I understand there's maybe things that have happened in your life where you're sitting there going, but this is, this is not what I had planned, and this is not how it's supposed to go, and, and terrible, maybe awful things have happened, and you're thinking, Lord, how can I trust you? How can I follow you? This is not all part of the plan. And you begin to step further and further away from God, and Somehow you think it's going to be okay. Don't walk away. We need you. I need you. Jesus wants you. Don't walk away. Don't walk away. Don't walk away from the truth. Because there'll be all these other things that are going to come in and try to compete intellectually with Jesus. And it's right about that time that I need to realize that my feelings are going to betray me. But my one true God will never, regardless of circumstances, my God never changes. Will you stand with me if you're able? And I pray that as a word of encouragement because I do realize in this last days that God is refining the bride of Christ. I, I don't think that's prophetic. I think all of you have seen that and are seeing that today. He is beginning the separation of the wheat and chaff. Are we prepared? Who is the Jesus we believe and serve? Is he the Jesus of scripture? Or is he the Jesus of mammon and comfort? Father, 
Lord, I, I pray you encourage the bride of Christ. Lord, I, I know this was meant to be an encouragement, even though it's, it's heavy, Lord. But even to the disciples that you spoke this to originally 2,000 years ago, Lord, you tried to explain you were the bread from heaven, the, the word, Lord. You had come to bring eternal life and sustain life for us, for humanity. And Lord, men and women and, and people couldn't get out of their own way, Lord. They, they were so focused on what they wanted, not, not, the, not the Messiah of the Scripture, not the Messiah of the commandments, statutes, and judgments, but the Messiah of their will. God, I pray that you would bind the enemy from lying and deceiving and trying to take this generation, Lord, Lord, I pray strengthen your bride. Strengthen the bride of Christ in the states here, Lord. Lord, I pray strengthen the bride of Christ worldwide. I thank you for our brothers and sisters, Lord, that even right now are being martyred. I thank you for the testimony of their witness. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you that they truly have counted the cost. And I thank you that they're not part of a, a weak American Christianity. Lord, please, Lord, please draw and call, wash and baptize anew through the Holy Spirit, your people. Pour your spirit out afresh and new for us here this morning. Like that oil, Lord, as you tell us in the scripture, it just keeps running forth and can't be contained in it. Lord, when we walk out of these doors, when we walk into the mission field here, Lord, let it just exude from our pores the love and truth of you, Jesus, to a lost and dying world, to even our brothers and sisters in Christ, that there would be an encouragement. Lord, I pray for those that need healing right now, Lord. As you, as you shared during the fast, we, we know, God, you're going to give the gift of healing in this church to different people. We know that. We believe the gifts of the Spirit. But, God, we need, we need that perfect work done in us, the work of sanctification. So please have your way in us now, Lord, ever decreasing, God, for us and ever increasing for you. And we just pray and ask all this from the depths, Lord, the depths of our heart. We love you and we are committed, God, to your truth, your love, and to you alone, Jesus. Not to a man in a pulpit, not to man's wisdom, but to be Bereans and to study the word daily, Lord. So we pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen.